0: is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Hurricane Ida is behind us, but not before it dumped three to eight inches of rain on Connecticut, leading to flooding, property damage, and some deaths. And before Ida, there was Henri, after an already soaking July and August. The National Weather Service says this summer is the third wettest on record. Today, Where We Live, what can the state do to prepare for more extreme storms? Coming up, we'll hear from Save the Sound, an environmental advocacy group working to make our shoreline more resilient. First, we wanted to talk to someone who's been impacted firsthand by this summer's weather. Roger Phillips and his family make their living off the land, and Ida hit them particularly hard. He joins us now by phone. Roger is a farmer and owner of Sub Edge Farm in Farmington. Roger, welcome back.
2: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: So first off, uh, we're so sorry uh, to see and hear about the devastation that your family farm has uh, seen this summer. When Hurricane Ida was forecast uh, to hit the Northeast, can you talk about what that day was like on your farm?
2: Sure. Well, we had already had, um, you know, like you said, a number of weather events, lots of rain. I think there was one day we had a freak five inches of rain in like two a two hour period or something. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the water, uh, kept collecting, kept collecting. And then this was just like the, the, the tipping point or, you know, the, the last straw as it were, um, the storm came in the middle of the night. I remember going out at about 1230 or one, um, to check on all the animals and water was coming literally in every direction with the wind about 30 miles per hour. It was terrifying out there. Um, so, you know, I was battening down the hatches, checking on all the, the, the chickens, and um, I was assuming that in the morning I was going to wake up and it was going to be bad, and um, and that was the case.
0: So uh, when you talk about this summer being very wet and, and the impact on the water table, so the, the sources of water near your farm and, and what this summer has done in terms of no place for the water to go, Roger?
2: Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I was looking at, um, you know, I think it was my Facebook memories or something from last year. And it showed a photograph of Thompson Brook, which runs right through the farm. And it was completely dry dry as a bone, no water in it at all. And this year it was rising and running through the fields, you know, really fast water um, coming through the fields. And then on the other side of the road where our fields are, the Farmington River had also risen up. And the two eventually met in the middle, um, at the in the road, and the road was underwater as well. So it was it was pretty dramatic.
0: Uh, tell our listeners about your farm because not only are you raising crops for summer and winter uh, CSAs, you mentioned uh, the animals that you have, and what was the impact, Roger?
2: Sure. Well, we're um, a diversified farm, and so we're doing lots of different things. We like to say that um, in, instead of a a monoculture like Joel Salatin, the farm, the, uh, our farm is a polyculture. Mm. So, w- primarily vegetables is what we do, but we also raise grass-fed beef. Uh, we raise pork. Uh, we have a thousand layer hens. We do meat birds. We do Thanksgiving turkeys. Um, so it's a very the the farm is very alive, it has a lot of life um, in it. Um, the um, we had bees on the farm. Um, the, the bees also had damage. I, it was just last middle of last week. I was able to wade out and check on our friend Stewart's bees, and um, they were all on their side. Uh, it was just one more, um, one more um, thing that got damaged, unfortunately.
0: And you lost a lot of crops. What does that mean for your winter CSA?
2: Well, I, um, I remember that morning, I had, um, it was a harvest morning, and so um, I was handing out the harvest list to our harvest crew, which is about seven uh, crew members, and somebody said, oh, I don't know, Raj, that field's underwater. I said, no, that can't be. That's never been underwater. So I went to check on it, and indeed, it was underwater. I said, okay, hold on, guys. I'll check on the lower field, went down there, and that was uh, literally like a lake. It was six, six feet underwater underwater. Um, so that field was about um, ten acres of um, winter squash and pumpkins, mixed vegetables, and then our north field was um, our fall brassica plantings and all the sort of crops that we'd be growing um, for Thanksgiving time and, and into winter, where we kind of squirrel away our winter crops and dole them out during the during the winter season. And um, all of that got pretty much just washed away. Um, so it was a punch in the gut. It was I came to Isabel and I, my wife Isabel and I said, who's my co farmer, I said, this is it, it's game over. So it was uh it was it was shocking for us.
0: Hmm. You mentioned the game over in terms of, of this season, and so can you talk about, you know, the planning that uh that you're you're doing now and, and how has the community responded, Roger, uh, to the losses that you've seen.
2: Well for, for planning now, it's kinda like you get one shot at a lot of these crops per year. And I usually say, well, if you make a mistake or you have a crop failure, you can't just suddenly fix it. You know, it takes an entire season, a year of planning and preparation to grow most of these crops that we're growing. Um, So it's planning now is more for next year and sort of figuring out what the danger areas are of potential flooding again, and maybe, you know, coming up with a, with a new layout and, opening up some, some new fields that did stay dry for vegetable production. Uh, as soon as this happens, um, you know, our road was closed, and we had neighbors and CSA members and customers who were calling us and texting us and messaging us, Are you, how are you guys, are you guys okay? Um, and one of the feedback that we got a lot was how can we help, how can we help, how can we help, and it was just overwhelming the number of people who um, hold this farm to be a special place for them and wanted to help, so people said, Let's start a GoFundMe, which we did, and I think within 24 hours we had met the the goal for the GoFundMe, which was mostly for us to make sure we had enough um, cash flow to be able to cover our operating expenses for the next few months. We wanted to be sure that we could pay our our harvest crew that doesn't have much to harvest anymore and um, keep them on through the the end of the season where they would normally be working. So it's been extremely gratifying um, for us. Uh, we went from this sort of feeling of absolute dread, like what are we going to do, what are we going to tell our CSA members, what are we going to tell our customers, how are we going to pay the bills, to it's okay, everybody's got our back, we've got this, and we're going to keep farming, we're going to be here next year, there's no problem. So it's it's been a good a good ending.
0: hearing Roger Phillips here on Where We Live. He's a co-farmer and owner of Sub-Edge Farm in Farmington as we talk about this uh, weather over the last uh, few months and the impact uh, on people like uh, local farmers, like Roger and his family. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So Roger, it sounds like you're optimistic for the future, but it's still a lot of work and it, it shows that there's a lot of risk involved with farming. There's some things you can't control.
2: Yeah, that's true. And sometimes that's, that's good. Sometimes that's kind of a nice feeling that you that, you know, we we do rely on, on nature. And um, sometimes we just have to let go. But then at the same time, it's you think about all of the all of the work that went into um, you know uh, cultivating and fertilizing and seeding and starting these plants in the greenhouse months and months and months ago, and all of the weeding that our crew did hours and hours down on their hands and knees and um, um, had to have that all be gone um, in a second is is crushing mm.
0: Uh, joining us now on Zoom is Greta Moran. She's a, civil, a senior reporter at Civil Eats rather, Civil Eats, a nonprofit online news site that's focused on the American food system. Greta, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. So we're listening to Connecticut farmer uh, Roger Phillips talking about just the impact of this season. We know in Connecticut we've had some recent droughts and so can you talk about when we think about farming across our country and, and what farmers are up against?
3: yeah so i think um climate change has uh, enormous impacts on um farming on a fundamental level um the climate climate change is making the world just less able to sustain all of life including plant life um so you know not only are farmers up against rising temperatures but also um climate change is affecting nutrient levels in crops, it's affecting the timing of when plants flower, Um, it's affecting insect and animal populations and the availability of water. Um, And then it's intensifying extreme weather events. So um, there's more prolonged periods of drought, there's erratic and extreme rainfall patterns as um, Roger Phillips experienced. There's more intense hurricanes and more intense wildfires. Um, And all of this really impacts agriculture, which is so dependent on a stable climate. Um, And so across the US, we're seeing places that were, you know, once thought of agricultural utopias um, being severely uh, impacted by the climate crisis. So along with um crop loss from climate disasters um, like drought and flooding. We're also seeing farmers letting their crops die in the fields because of um, the water shortages, um especially in the west. Um, and so it's um, it's it's interesting to how different the impacts are. So in Connecticut, um you're seeing these more extreme and erratic, rainfall events um, this summer. But then on the other side of the country, um, there's a severe water shortage um, in the groundwater levels, um, and in the, the surface water levels. So what are some solutions that uh,
0: farms and farmers are exploring? Because we know that this climate crisis, unfortunately, isn't going away and this more extreme events are going to be part of, of our future
3: yeah um so i would say first the most important solution for anything related to the climate crisis is stopping putting fossil fuels in the atmosphere Um, but then there's also a lot that farmers can do to adapt Um, so uh, a lot of farmers are um, there's a new a new uh, focus around regenerative agriculture which Um, isn't actually really new. It's really based on a lot of indigenous and older farming practices. But a lot of this is focused around building up the soil fertility. Um, So if you have really healthy soil, it can be better able to absorb um, water and sort of act like a sponge in the case of extreme rainfall events. And then um, if there's not a lot of water, then you also get those sponge-like benefits um, where it can absorb the very little water that falls from the sky. Um, so that's uh, that's a really key solution is building up the soil health so it can function sort of like a buffer to these um extreme weather events. Um, and uh, then I think also um, improving land access for, for small farmers and indigenous farmers and um, who have been already doing a lot of these climate friendly solutions is, is another really key key method. Mm-hmm.
0: Roger Phillips is still with us from Subedge Farm in Farmington. Uh, Roger, uh, you've been farming for many years, and so as you're seeing uh, the uh, conditions fluctuate from year to year, can you talk about some of the uh, the approaches that your farm is taking uh, to adapt?
2: Sure. Yeah, I would say um, one of the things that's most noticeable is the is the kind of extremes that we're talking about, and like I mentioned, how last year. We had a, this in, in, intense drought. I was, remember looking at the drought map. And, you know, you have a sort of orange and, and green on the outside, and then, you know, red is more intense. And for, for our farm on the map, it was like the red spot, of course. Um, so we went from that to, to being underwater, and that's what makes it challenging, is how do you prepare for one or the other two extremes in both ways. So last year after our drought, we said, okay, we've got to be ready for this again. Next year, so we spent you know ten thousand dollars on a new well and ten thousand dollars on uh, a whole bunch of hoses and attachments for irrigation et cetera et cetera et cetera and of course this year we we didn't use it, and most of it was on, underwater um at one point um so it's it's a challenge to be able to um to to think this way um we're really looking at like I said before sort of remapping the farm and and um, figuring out where this water is coming from, where are the the safer areas? Um, somebody had recommended to us that we might be able to dredge a couple of the ponds that we have on the farm so that they're deeper and can hold more rainwater or stormwater when it comes in. And another thing that we we definitely are keyed into is making sure all of our soil is has crops growing on it at all times so that so that there's no exposed tilled soil that can be washed away because that was one thing that really scared me um, after this was, you know, is there going to be any erosion um, damage because I have known farmers who have lost several feet of topsoil in floods like this. And, and of course, that's, that's uh, tragic because you can't really get that back. Um, So those are a couple of the things that we're doing or thinking about.
4: Yeah.
0: And when we think about the, the farm community in our state, uh, Roger, it's a small community, but are there other farms that are also dealing with these challenges?
2: Oh absolutely, yeah. Um even in within Farmington I know, um uh over on Meadow Road on the area called we call the flats, it was that was also completely underwater. I saw some drone photos of that. Um, I, I read about the, the farm in Woodbury had um, had lost, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of crops. Holcomb Farm in Granby had to cancel their winter CSA because um, they also um, had a lot of losses. So it's definitely not just us. Um, we were encouraged by the Department of Agriculture to report to the Farm Service Agency all of our losses, and then hopefully the state can go to the federal government and ask for some emergency funds for for all of these farms who have um, who've suffered losses from from these events.
0: Well, that's good to hear, uh, Roger. Uh, Greta, before we let you go, as we talk about uh, just the, the impact of uh, the climate crisis on farming in our country, uh, we're thinking about ways to support uh, farms. Uh, obviously, you know, th- they have to think about the cost of, of what they are, are growing and raising and, you know, how this impacts our food system um, in terms of increasing costs uh, to the consumers and, you know, what that means for the type of support that, you know, states like Connecticut have for, for smaller farms based versus mm-hmm. what you see in California. Uh, Greta, did you want to respond? Yeah. Um,
3: yeah, I think that's, uh, that's. Definitely true. I think I'm, I'm especially concerned about some of the, the economic risks to the smaller farms, um, and along within Connecticut, on the on the other side of the country, a lot of smaller farms um, have have more shallow wells, so it can be especially hard for them um, right now in the drought. They're they're more likely to go dry um, before the larger farms with deeper wells, and so I think um, any economic support to um, that, that is given to small farmers um, is critical right now. And um, you you definitely need that in order to sustain regional food systems Um, and, you know, all the, all the beautiful fruits and vegetables that people enjoy at farmers markets um, and, and in grocery stores and in restaurants, um, you definitely need, need support for the, the smaller farmers for that.
0: I want to thank Greta Moran for joining us, senior reporter at Civil Eats. And, and Roger Phillips, you said that the community has rallied to support you. There was that GoFundMe. Are there other ways to help SubEdge Farm and the other farms that you mentioned?
2: Yeah, well, one of the the, the best things that, that people can do is just remember that we're open, we're here, we're growing food for you. Um to, to maybe make an extra trip that out of your way that's something you might buy at the grocery store to go to a local farm and, and buy it from them. And also um, to be regular customers is super important. You know? um, if you go to a farmer's market, go every week and, and make sure that, that, that you can support those farmers. Because right now, I, a lot of the growers that I talk to, they're like at the, point, the tipping point where they're like, oh my, I'm not going to do this anymore. So, um, so the support really means a lot, um, a lot to us right now.
0: Roger Phillips, again, is a co-farmer and owner of Sub-Edge Farm in Farmington. Roger, thank you.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're going to talk to a Connecticut environmental advocacy group about ways the state and our short line can become more resilient to stronger storms. You can join us, too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
1: Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare.
2: Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare.
0: This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Scientists say New Englanders should expect more extreme weather in the future due to climate change. So what can Connecticut do to prepare for an increasing number of of stronger storms? How has the summer of storms impacted your home, your community? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Kurt Johnson from Save the Sound joins us now. He's president of the organization It focuses on ways to make our shoreline more resilient. Kurt, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, we've all lived through Superstorm Sandy, Hurricane Irene, and we we hear talk about uh, climate resiliency. Tell us about the efforts that we've seen in the last decade and the work that still needs to be done, Kurt.
5: Yeah, I'm going to focus a fair amount, Lucy, on our Inland flooding problems. You know, you mentioned Ida and Henry, we heard from Roger. uh, And this has been the summer of extreme deluges. And that is what our scientists are predicting that we we are are telling us we already are experiencing much more in uh, New England, and we can anticipate experiencing more. So one of the things that uh, we did with the DEEP, and I commend uh, the current DEP and PASS for working with towns to pass a set of rules to create more sponges, more rain gardens to require that downtown areas and urbanized neighborhoods, which we have many, many, many of in our towns and cities, that 121 of our towns and cities have to start building these rain garden sponges to absorb floodwaters and polluted stormwater because the water that runs off our streets and runs off our parking lots is filled with everything from dog poop to uh, oils and greases and all kinds of bacteria. So it's, it's a combination program to create sponges to absorb flood water and clean up pollution. And that program is in existence and now towns need to submit their plans. And what we're concerned about, uh, Lucy, is that uh, many, many, many of those 121 towns have not kept up with the requirement and have not yet submitted uh, plans to create these uh, sponges. So Save the Sound is very concerned about that. We're pleased that the regulation exists and uh, we need to make sure that uh, we create those kinds of sponges, hundreds of them around the st- state, to do exactly what Greta was talking about, create sponges to absorb excess flood water and uh, also the polluted stormwater.
0: When you talk about polluted stormwater, so uh, because of our aging wastewater infrastructure, as you mentioned, uh, the Clean Water Fund, you know, how um, important is that to uh, helping with these upgrades and what's being seen?
5: It's uh, it's very important. Um, I'm pleased that the legislature had the wisdom to pass a few few more million dollars this year to assist with sanitary sewer upgrades of course storm water is in almost all our towns a separate system it's the drains you see in the street where uh, the water from the street goes down into these drains and those drains then have pipes that whoosh it right out into the rivers so they often are a uh, interconnected problem because uh too much storm water will cause you know groundwater and and or will cause our, our water system to rise as Roger experienced and that can overwhelm our sanitary system. So they are interlock, interlocking systems uh, many times during storm events. So we have to, again, uh, tighten up those pipes. There's more money to do that available to towns. We need to uh, provide dollars for the towns to help build these sponges that we are talking about, these rain garden sponges. And I'm pleased that the legislature passed 25 million dollars to help with flood resiliency in the state this year, uh, oh, and yeah. the. And Kurt,
0: I just wanted to say, uh, Anthony tweeted that uh, they recently held a green infrastructure meetup in Hartford, and he's got a big question of why the Metropolitan District has zero ground-level green infrastructure in its $2 billion long-term plan. Uh, The solutions, he says, must be holistic, not hiding the problem in hugely expensive contaminated stormwater tunnels. Um, How do you respond to that? What can you tell us?
5: Well, I think both are are valuable. I completely agree with Anthony that... um, The city of Hartford, and I know the mayor and the first lady of Hartford are very interested in seeing more um, of these rain gardens up on the street level, as Save the Sound is, and we're willing to help. Uh, The surrounding towns need to do the same. And I'll also say that the uh, tunnel, while I agree, is very expensive, it is basically the idea that you could capture and store... A lot of stormwater during a flood or turn, during an extreme rain event, and then slowly bleed it and send it off into the sewage treatment plant to be treated, and that is, uh, you know, is not an unreasonable solution. Uh, they have been useful, but I completely agree with Anthony that we need to have a combined effort on this front, and uh, you know, that's that's a responsibility for the uh, several towns surrounding the city of Hartford and the city of Hartford itself to get with the program of designing and uh, setting out a plan for um, pulling together and constructing scores and hundreds of these rain gardens. By the way, the city of New Haven has started doing this and uh, installed. We helped them Uh, site and install about 75 in a neighborhood near Union Station down there, and during a extreme rain event, it was determined that in fact, those rain gardens did help to uh, lower the peak of the flood. It's not the complete solution, it's not going to solve everything, but as we have more of these extreme rain events, it is something we need to do. We need to help our cities and our neighborhoods Uh, with lots of streets for that streetscape to start acting much more like a forest. You know, when we go out in the forest in a rainstorm, we see that it absorbs water back in. We can do the same kind of thing with these rain garden programs.
0: I want to take some listener calls. You can join us too, 888 720 9677, as we talk about how Connecticut can become more resilient to uh, this extreme weather that we've been seeing uh, more heavy rain, uh, inland flooding, as Kurt mentioned. Uh, Lorena's calling in from East Haven. Lorena, what did you want to share?
6: Hi, good morning. Thank you so much, both, uh, both of you, for taking my phone call. I'm an East Haven resident, and I'm really concerned about the Tweed Airport expansion that's coming right now. There's plans to expand the airport that includes filling in wetlands, um, expanding pavement. And in East Haven, we have a Hemingway Avenue and Coe Avenue that currently flood. Under Connecticut DOT, there's been grants to try to raise the ground, but it's not sufficient because we're all coexisting in a marshland, in a wetland that's flooding. Right now, the airport, uh, circle data shows that that land is going to be flooded um, uh, in the, by the year 2050. But right now, the runway is the sea level. Um, it's only about a meter down, so it's not. We don't have. We're in the situation right now where flooding is happening in our neighborhoods, in our basements. We see it with our neighbors, but we see site plans and investor, uh, you know, dreams where our neighborhood and our quality of life is ham- being hampered right now. And we have well, elected well, officials that are sitting on the sidelines quiet. And that well, Irina, really, let, um,
0: let, okay. um, let me take uh, Save the Sounds, uh, Kurt Johnson's uh, response to, to what you raised. We've been hearing about this uh, Tweed Airport expansion uh, for some time and, and her concerns about um, you know, expanding pavement um, and the impact on wetlands. Uh, Kurt, did you have anything that you wanted to share with us about this project?
5: Yeah, Save the Sound shares many of the concerns that she's raised. Uh, You know, Tweet is located uh, on wetlands, and the expansion calls for filling of wetlands. We've heard about mitigation. Um, Unfortunately, we've requested the opportunity to go out on the site with scientists and our own scientists to understand what's going on. And so far, we haven't been allowed to do that. Which is, you know, really inexcusable. There needs to be a full environmental assessment, uh, and any proposal to replace or or uh, mitigate with, you know, rebuilding wetlands needs to be looked at super carefully because everything that the caller talked about is absolutely correct, and you know, one needs to question whether uh, it's it's not acceptable to have Bradley as our major single airport here in the state you know similar issues could be raised in bridgeport and stratford about their uh location you know they have uh sikorsky down there um in 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 our opinion we should be focusing much more of our energy around a single airport that is at a higher elevation up at bradley we simply don't have millions and millions of dollars to be expending uh, on uh, multiple airport projects and the environmental impact uh, is potentially very, very serious. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, we talked about resiliency earlier in the show. Adam from Hamden's calling in. Adam, what did you want to talk about?
4: Uh, yeah, well, I mean, there are definitely, uh, Well, I just I wanted to say thank you for taking my call. Um, but, um, yeah, there are a lot of things sort of on the policy level, uh, you know, along the lines of what uh, Michelle Collar uh, raised with the Tweed Airport um, and things that you know, as a as a relatively person I don't fully understand. But um, I'm uh, walking around in my house trying to find a place where I cannot, uh, um, you know, overhear the sounds of uh, lawnmowers and uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, leaf blowers and things like that. And I think that that is one thing that, as individual homeowners, that we can think about is sort of changing lawn culture. Um, as your your guest Greta mentioned, um, you know, one of the things that we see is if soil is richer. Um, that there's more ability to both absorb um, rainwater from extreme uh, rainfall events, as well as, um, you know, to, uh, to store water when there are periods of drought. And I think that's one thing that is also worth mentioning is that both last summer and this summer, We've seen in Connecticut um, pretty significant periods of drought preceding these rainfall events. So it's really been kind of bouncing back and forth. Um, so I think that, you know, if homeowners are able to make the choice to reduce the amount of lawn on their, um, you know, on their property, um, reduce the amount of grass that they're growing and growing native plants or growing food for themselves, um you know, these are things that we'll see, um, great ability just with the diversity of root types, um, you know, in, in your property's ability to absorb water. Um, and we have been lucky enough to not have any significant, um, impacts here, um, as a result, uh, you know, but uh, some of our neighbors have not been so lucky, but, um, as a result of some of the extreme rainfall events, you know, thanks to things like the peach tree and, um, you know, a lot of our native shrubs and things like that, we've been able to absorb a fair amount of that water, um, which has been, you know, on a fairly small uh, property, of 0.15 acres. So, um, you know, I think if people are able to, uh, to reconsider their relationship to lawns as individual homeowners, that's one significant thing that will really help with the biodiversity, really help with uh, rainfall resiliency. Um, and I think we'll, make a difference in terms of, you know, kind of the overall um, food security, too, because I think if people are able to grow even a quarter of their own food on their their, uh, lawns, then they won't be as affected um, by the unfortunate losses that affected um, your guest Roger at his farm.
0: Well, thank you, Adam, uh, for for sharing those comments with us here on Where We Live. Uh, Kurt Johnson from Save the Sound. You know, I started the segment um, wanting to learn more about, you know, how to make uh, also our shorelines more resilient. Um, You know, on your website, uh, you cite the stat that by 2050, Connecticut's coast can expect 20 inches of sea level rise. So can you talk about some of the efforts we've seen from since the time of Superstorm Sandy and, and where more work needs to be done?
5: Yeah, I can. Um, I'll mention an important opportunity, which is uh, somewhat similar to what the last colleges talked about, which is to work with nature, find nature based solutions to uh, building out our natural defenses along the coastline. And I'll give you uh, two examples uh, one in New Haven, which we've been helping the city of New Haven with, which is the East Shore Park has about two thirds of a mile, which is not now accessible to regular people. It is so eroded that there's three to five feet of you know eroded bank that it's too dangerous for kids to enjoy. There's no place to walk there. The potential solution that's in design there is to uh, bring in some probably dread, clean dredge materials uh, and to extend out the, uh, a much flatter uh, surface out into the waterway with uh, the opportunity to build marshes, to have some very short sections of breakwater to dissipate the uh, wave energy, uh, to create marshes, to create some small pocket beaches. And as a result, you're going to have a situation where that park and the surrounding community is more protected. It will be an opportunity for people to reclaim two-thirds of a mile of Long Island Sound for, you know, pure public use by tens of thousands of, of people who enjoy that park today for other purposes. And it's a way to rebuild the, the power of nature. You know, we'll have several acres more of tidal wetlands, which I think most of your viewers know or listeners know are uh, the places where fish and, and, and birds of all type. Uh, thrive and live. So these are the kinds of solutions. We have another project uh, that we're working with the town of Guilford, similar park structure. We uh, think we need to have dozens of these projects going on around the Sound. We're happy to work with others. We're glad again for the $25 million that our legislature directed towards that can be used for these kinds of projects. Um, You know, and I'll just tell you another really interesting uh, project that happened in West Haven. Uh, there was a small community that was being flooded. Uh, you know, these were ranch houses, about uh, two dozen of them repeatedly flooded. They had been flooded out by a combination of too much stormwater flooding and, and coastal surge flooding three, four, five times in a period of a few years. And after uh, Sandy came, they, they simply went to the town and went to FEMA and the town, uh, City of West Haven, agreed and, and were able to find funds to buy them out and retreat and, and move away from that area. People were reimbursed for the value of their property. And uh, now that area is you know, being proposed for uh, perhaps some title restoration tidal marsh restoration. But this was a voluntary effort by, um, you know, several dozen uh, people who just said, you know, enough's enough. We have simply uh, suffered too many floods and and too many problems. And we want to be reimbursed for the value of our property. And uh, now that property is becoming conservation land. So, Mm. you know, that I think we're going to see more in the future as well.
0: You know, it's good to talk about, you know, ways that um, projects that people can get involved in, ways to design infrastructure, uh, to prepare for um, the climate. But at the same time, just getting back to, you know, the root of the issue and ways to reduce emissions in our region. Uh, we saw the TCI proposal uh, fail uh, this last session. Um, you know, how how does Save the Sound feel about any steps that can be taken the next legislative session? Are you feeling confident with yeah. the lawmakers at the Capitol?
5: Well, we're, we're feeling hopeful. Um, you know, this is the Transportation Climate Initiative. Our single largest climate, uh, you know, source of pollution is our transport, not just here, Lucy, in Connecticut, but in all of our, uh, all of the country and certainly in our northeastern states. And the Transportation Climate Initiative, why the it, why it's so important is that uh, it is a, collaboration of 11 states. We are the first one of the state legislatures to uh, deal with this. And it's critically important that we get it over the finish line. This would uh, cut climate pollution, carbon pollution by one-third regionally, if we adopted it. You know, one-third of of climate pollution being reduced by about 30 to 35 million people who live in that 11-state uh, area. I couldn't agree more with your last caller about individual action. That's critically important, but we have to work collectively on large policy changes like this. And the last thing I'll just say is this is absolutely not a gas tax. We need to look at what experiment we've already run with a trap and a, a, excuse me, a cap and trade program. We have run that experiment on our electrical sector. 12 years ago, we adopted what's called RGGI, uh, which is our electrical cap and trade program. And the results have been both tremendous for consumers and tremendous for the environment. Uh, 45% reduction achieved in carbon emissions from our electrical uh, uh, electric, electrical generation. And in addition to that, uh, you know, there were all these naysayers that were going to that were saying that electrical costs in our region would go through the roof. If you compare the Reggie states that adopted cap and trade to the rest of the country, the rest of the country experienced about a five, five and a half percent increase in the cost of electricity. We experienced about a half a percent increase. We outperform them from a consumer benefit point of view 10 times from the rest of the country that went with a laissez-faire. We can't do anything about climate change. So to say that this is a tax is a complete misappropriation of the word. It is not. And again, the one experiment we tried with cap and trade, uh, it resulted in our consumers benefiting much more than the rest of the country.
0: Well, Kurt Johnson, president of Save the Sound, we'll we'll wait to see what happens with CCI uh, when the legislature uh, reconvenes. But we appreciate your t- time today here on Where We Live.
5: Thank you so much. Appreciate it.
0: Coming up, we're going to pivot to a topic a little less serious. One of the reasons we love New England is fall and with autumn comes the return of a delightful treat. After the break, we talk to a cider donateur. Seriously, stay with us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanschel. Fall officially starts next week, and for some that means grabbing everything pumpkin spiced off the shelves. But New Englanders know this is the season for a treat like no other, the apple cider donut. My next guest has made it his, quote, lifelong mission to try every cider donut. Alex Schwartz, I believe, is a Connecticut native and the cider donateur. He joins us now on the phone. Alex, welcome to our show.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: I chuckled when I saw your Instagram bio uh, describing you as just a plaid-wearing autumn man documenting his lifelong mission to try every cider donut. So how did this all get started?
1: Oh, geez. I mean, well, I guess first off, yes. I uh, I did grow up in Connecticut and, <laughs> you know, that's a that's a huge part of it is it's kind of ingrained in my childhood is going to farm stores, having cider donuts, going to Uh, orchards and all that. And, you know, it's been an absolutely wild past two years, right? Like the pandemic, Um, last fall around early September, I was trying to think of ways to get out of the house in a safe way. And so I started going on hikes outside of the city. I live in Boston now. And, uh, you know, to kind of incentivize those hikes, I was trying to think, well, maybe I could stop by after I do some exercise and get a uh, tasty cider donut treat, but there was no real resource where you could figure out well, where are all the different locations, and if I am in a certain spot, can I just open a map? That's what I wanted. It's like I just want to open a map and see what's the closest place to get one of these. So I felt like someone had to do it, and uh, that was my calling.
0: That's right. So you have a cider donut map, but looking around <laughs> New England as a best a best farm stores places to go for a perfect cider donut. So. Tell us what qualifies um, that would make you say this is a place to to go to. This is the donut that you need in your life.
1: Oh, geez. I mean, so um, you've got a distinction between kind of uh, you could go to Stu Leonard's and you could get a box of cider donuts, but they're not being made fresh and hot in front of you. And so the map was um, intended to essentially be a list of locations where you could go where they're actually making the donuts directly in front of you hot and fresh. And I think that's actually one of the big criterias for me when I'm rating is um, are you, you know, like when you open the bag of the donuts is steam coming out and can you, you know, just experiencing the hot donut is far and away the best um, way to experience it.
0: And sugar or no sugar?
1: Um, it's a complicated one. You know, like you've got the argument of you've got the regular granulated sugar, you've got the cinnamon sugar, and then you've got kind of the plain. I prefer the plain if the farm store is doing it right, where there's kind of a natural sweetness from the cider that's in the batter emerging. So I think that there's a good way to do that. But um, I would never say no to a, a sugared one.
0: Now, I'm going to ignore that you said you live in Boston now, since you are a Connecticut (laughs) native, but can you maybe, I'll put you on the spot, what are some places in Connecticut that people should check out for the the perfect cider donut?
1: Oh, man. Okay, so (laughs) I know that uh, Lyman uh, Orchards in Middlefield, they are well known for having um, fantastic cider donuts. I grew up near Blue Jay Orchards uh, in Bethel, and we went there all the time, and I have fond memories of their cider donuts. Um, and then two others, again, cause this is, um, I get lots of comments from people on the internet, uh, kind of like fervently recommending their favorite spot. Um, I've heard a lot of Rogers orchards in Southington and also Hogan's cider mill. Um, someone sent me a photo of Hogan's, they have this drunken cider, which is basically like a cup of cold cider topped with a lid, but the lid is actually a cider donut. So it's kind of, um, you know, what will they come up with next?
0: Wow, that sounds like a, a Where We Live field trip uh, producer at Test Terrible. Let's uh, make sure we write that one down. Uh, before we let you go, Alex, so how many sites are on your map now? How many donuts have you tried?
1: <laughs> uh, well, there's over 200 um, farm stores on the map, so it really does achieve its goal of, like, wherever you are, you could just open it and say, hey, is there a cider donut place within, you know, 10 or 15 minutes of me? Um I've gone to, so I started it last year. Obviously, the season is early this year. In last season, I went to 30 different orchards, um, and, you know, that was that was a ton of fun. Uh, one day, I did kind of overdo it. Um, I was driving, and I said, any place that had a sign that said cider donuts, I will definitely try one, um, and I ended up eating six different donuts that day. Um, my stomach was not super jazzed about having done that, but I was, you know, doing it for the cause. Uh <laughs>
0: Well, it sounds like you're living the, your best life, Alex. And we thank you for coming on the show. I have to ask: the Big E is happening this year. Is it worth trying any apple cider donuts at any of the vendors there?
1: I actually remember um, trying my first cider donut at the Big E, um, and I think it was one of the mini cider donuts that someone has a cart where they set it up, and that was fantastic. I think that's where I where I fell in love. So, highly recommend it.
0: All right, so don't knock the biggie. You might find a, a perfect cider donut there. Alex Schwartz, again, is the Cider tour. We're going to send out a link to Alex's Cider Donut Map. And we appreciate your time, Alex. Thank you.
1: Thanks Thanks for having me.
0: I'm Lucy D'Alpithanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible, who also loves a good cider donut and hot apple cider. Cat Pastor is our technical producer. We'll be back tomorrow.